We're going to be in Acts 27. If you would like to turn there. You have a pew Bible. That is page 936. 936. We are two texts away from the end of Acts this week and next week. So at the end of the day, we'll be only one. And uh, we're going to be reading starting in verse 1 of 27 through to 10 of 28. So if you will follow along as I read, we will make our way through this. Oh, just so you know, I'm going to not explain much ahead of time. I'll explain afterwards. There's lots to do with geography and timing and, and things of that nature, so I'll deal with those after I read. Chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open ocean along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And, as the wind would not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Haven, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I believe that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used support to undergird the ship. Then... Fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, 
For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have found faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense, and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged, and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up, or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever 
we needed. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you, as Luke talked about earlier on, that he saw fit to put together an orderly account. Thank you for the detail that he includes in this. Uh, it's uh, helpful when we think about the historicity of a book like Acts, when we think about the validity of it, that when he talks about geography, it's places that actually exist. When he talks about winds and, and timing, that these are things that we know are even true today. Thank you for the confidence in your word in that way. And, and we pray that uh, as we look together at Acts 27, this strange story in the midst of a book all about the gospel going forth, that you would help us see and know your glory and your sovereignty. God, show us just how profoundly in control of this world you are as we look at Acts 27. In your name we pray. Amen. The title of the sermon is God's Sovereignty. And what I am hoping to do is to explode bigger, broader, more fully our understanding of what the sovereignty of God is means, and the subtitle is Seeing the Supernatural in the Natural. And I'm doing a little bit of a play on words there, obviously, but I'm hoping that we walk out of here, and when we look at dandelions, even though they drive us crazy, or when we face trials and difficulties that are not so insignificant, but rather enormous and huge, I pray that we will have a better understanding of who God is and how he is intimately and intricately involved from the big, huge things that take place all the way down to a blade of grass blowing in the wind. I pray that we would see that he is that in control of this world that provides such hope to us. To catch us up from where we were last week, and for those of you who were not here, Jeremy was talking about and, and preaching from 26 and 27, 25 as well, when Paul was before Agrippa and before Felix, and that he had appealed to Caesar, and so Luke is continuing on, and there's a little bit of a break here. The, the path and the pattern of the rest of Acts has kind of been put on hold, and Luke has really focused in on a small chunk of time here. What we see in 27 up to 28.10 is really only about 40-ish, maybe, days or so, not a huge chunk of time considering where we've been so far. And certainly in the chapters before this, it was a very small amount of time where Paul was talking to Agrippa and to Festus. There was the two-year break, but most of the text dealt with these very small bits. And just as a reminder, whenever the text zooms in, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. And so we want to pull back out and say, what's going on? What is the big picture that Luke is trying to help Theophilus and therefore us as well see in what he is doing? So Paul talking with Agrippa, Festus on his way to where he's going. And I've got a little bit of a a tour here of the Middle East and the Mediterranean for us. We've got a little boat with only three men. Aristarchus doesn't get a starring role in this scene. I hope that's okay for any of you Aristarchus fans. But where we start, we have Paul, and he is with Luke, and he is with Julius, the centurion, and they leave Caesarea, and they go to Sidon, which is around 80 miles to the north. It's a day trip. And then from there, they head over to Myra in Lycia, this is present-day Turkey, Cilicia and Pamphylia. You heard him mention those two. This would be 450 miles, roughly, and around seven or ten days. And he talks about how they faced difficulties. So as you can see with the line, they went up and around the island there to 
get behind the lee of it. And the lee just refers to like a wind buffer. Just think about trees functioning uh, of a windbreak of sorts. That's what they're doing here. And they were hoping once they got underneath the southern portion of Turkey that the coastal winds would help buffer the rest of the winds that would be blowing over the Mediterranean. From here, they head over to a place called Nidus. Looks like Snidus or Sinidus or Cnidus. And this is around 200 miles away. Would have been another four to eight days. And he talks about the difficulty that they faced here. So all of these times are really approximate. They're just estimations. From Nidus, they make it over to Fair Havens on the southern portion of Crete. And the other part of Crete that they wanted to get to would have been beyond Fair Havens over to the west, where it says, thank you for the mouse, they could have looked to the north uh, west and the southwest. And there's where they make a mistake. This is where Paul speaks up and says, we really shouldn't go out. He lists the day. He says it's already past the, uh, the feast. And this would have been the Day of Atonement. It would have been a well-known time frame in this area of the world that you just don't venture out onto the Mediterranean after this date. This is typically around the end of October or the beginning of November, and it would extend through all the way to the end of February. For the most part, you would be gambling with your life and anything that you were carrying on a boat if you went out onto the Mediterranean after this, as we saw they ran into. So from Fair Havens, they're trying to go to the other side of Crete, but they end up heading all the way over. So here the map is going to reset. Crete is going to take a place now on your right. They're leaving Crete, and this is roughly where they go. And he talked about running into the Sirtis. You can't see the text, but in the southern portion where the water goes down further, that's where Sirtis is. And it's an area of the water where the land is really close, and there are various places where you could run ashore. And You'd be stuck there for who knows how long and probably ruin your boat and whatever equipment or gear you had on it would, would suffer loss, uh, or you would suffer loss of that. So from there, then they're just kind of blown around all over the place, and finally they get over to Malta. The ship breaks up, and they make it to Malta. This would have been around 600 miles, and we know this is around 18 days. There were the 14 days where they didn't eat. There was the day where they were swimming uh, after the ship was broke up. We don't know how close they were to get to, uh, to Crete, I'm sorry, to Malta, and then also there were the three days ahead of time where it was, it was dark and they weren't sure what was going on. And I think the reason that Luke zooms in and works really hard is that he's trying to reinforce some key themes of Acts that we've already dealt with. So I'm just going to throw three of them up there. These are the ones I'm going to deal with today. This is by no means all of them. These are not special. I think they're probably more significant than any of the, the others, but he's working to reinforce these ideas. God is faithful to his word. God uses everyday occurrences to accomplish his purposes. And hardship does not mean that we are walking down the wrong path. So hopefully these themes are not new. Hopefully you've observed them before. Don't worry if you haven't written them down in time. They will be on the next slide. So let's deal with the first one. God is faithful to his word. Luke used lots of terminology that you would know if you were a sailor and lots of terminology that you wouldn't know if you weren't a sailor. And I think he's trying to build up excitement. He's dealt with Festus and Agrippa, and he's talked about all the things that are going on, and he's trying to build excitement. Think about a movie that you've seen recently or a show. Almost always, if we get at the end of them and we say, that one was enjoyable, it at some point peaks with a reasonable amount of suspense and tension. He's building that suspense and that tension. Kind of sounds strange because we're not first century readers. Kind of sounds strange because it's not a 
normal place for it to occur, at least in our estimation and understanding, but he's trying to drive home a point. And I think the point is that God is faithful. Remember, two texts that are very significant. The first is Acts 1.8. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with the disciples. And while he's there, he says to them, and Wayne actually referenced that this morning while he was teaching, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in concentric circles, Jerusalem, larger, Judea and Samaria, and even larger, to the ends of the earth. And God is being faithful to what Jesus has said here, that this testimony is going to go out. Chapters 13 through 28 of Acts are dealing with the ends of the earth, and Luke is just showing God is continuing to work. He's now going even further. And what we don't know, or what they don't know, is that once the gospel goes to Rome, it's just going to explode because of Roman peace, because of the Roman roads, because of Roman control and reign. The gospel is going to go forth like crazy because of that. This is one of the ways God's going to use it to reach the ends of the earth. But just a couple chapters before where we are at in Acts 23, in verse 11, Jesus shows up to Paul and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is what Luke said was going to take place. He decided to put it in here. He didn't have to include everything that was spoken of by Jesus, but he put this one specifically in there. And in this Luke-Acts combination, remember, Luke is trying to show Theophilus that he can have certainty. Here's the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Like Luke's got a checklist, he's saying, we're just going to check that one off. You can have certainty, Theophilus. Jesus says something's going to happen. Don't worry. It's going to happen. He even reinforces it within the chapter, context of chapter 27 where an angel appears to Paul and says, you're going to get there, don't worry. And then Paul uses that to encourage others. So God is faithful to his word. Number two, another theme, is that God uses everyday occurrences to accomplish his means. We know because of Acts 23.11 that Jesus said Paul's going to make it there. We know it's certain that this is going to happen. We know because we have the rest of Acts, we know that he makes it there. But this doesn't lessen, this understanding, this doesn't lessen the fact that God is involved in these everyday occurrences. And I think maybe this is where we, we tend to get a little bit confused or we have some difficulty because we try to understand the way God works. And I'm just going to present to you now, and then I'm going to present to you with the implications what I think Scripture teaches. That is, if you think about a train track, there's the track of God's sovereignty, there's the track of man's free will, as it is sometimes referred to, or man's responsibility or man's ability to, to choose things. And if you were standing in the middle of a train track, you can see clear as day, there's a track on your right, there's a track on your left. But if that track was straight, and if the land was level and plain, about five miles down, they would be inseparable. Scripture teaches both. We don't know how that works. I'm just going to throw out there that the tension exists. We just have to 
deal with it in many ways. There's not much that we can do about it, but I'm going to work to present both. So, God uses everyday occurrences to accomplish his means or his purposes. Actually, that should say purposes, not means. I'm sorry, I have that wrong on there. So here's four examples where we see both God's sovereignty and the free will choices of individuals that are working together to bring about the conclusion of Paul making it to Rome. Look at verse 17b, so this is after the first sentence. It says, Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. We have three separate choices being made by sailors, sailors who are not Jesus followers. They're just making rational choices here. If we want to get somewhere quickly, if the ship is too heavy, we just need to get rid of some of the weight. Here is God's sovereignty working alongside man's choices. Number two, 30 through 32. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Free will choice. The centurion chose to chop off the ropes that held the boat. And I think maybe sometimes when we read what we see there that Paul says that unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved, maybe we put too much of some type of divine statement from God in there. I think he's just saying, look, these guys are sailors. There are at least 200 and, I don't know, 50 of us on board who are not. If the sailors all leave, who's going to pilot the boat? This is just very logical thinking. This is not some super spiritual thing. This is just, this is logical thinking. This is what we do as people. We need to make logical choices with the rationale that God has given us. These sailors would know. They know how to pilot the ship. Everybody else does not. They're certainly going to be in a world of hurt, worse than they are, if they don't just make the choice. And then the soldiers stay and, and, uh, and they decide to chop off the boat. Not the soldiers, the sailors stay and they decide to chop off the ropes of the boat. 33 through 34. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, it's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. He's already communicated to them, God's going to bring you there safely, but he doesn't say, just will it. He doesn't say, neglect the Krebs cycle, and the Krebs cycle is the way that our body takes food and turns it into energy. He doesn't say, neglect the cycle of what we do for energy. Eat, eat food. It's like that time when God talks to Elijah and says, look, you need to eat some food, man. You, you probably haven't eaten in a long time. This is just the sovereign power of God working through normal human choices. You've been in suspense for 14 days. Your nerves are on edge. You haven't eaten, and you're about to jump into a really chaotic bit of waters, and you don't want to eat? That would be a bad choice. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, or man's choices. Last 43 and 44. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. I mean, how logical is that, right? The boat's going to be destroyed. Don't let the people who know how to swim stay on the boat until it gets destroyed and risk having them getting sucked down while it sinks or getting impaled by something or getting knocked unconscious. They know how to swim. 
skip them overboard. Let them swim and get far away. And then everybody else, don't just lay there and hope that God in his sovereignty is going to hold you up in the water and keep your mouth just above. No, grab onto a plank. Hold onto something that floats because you don't. And you will sink if you don't. So God uses normal, everyday means to accomplish his purposes. As I'll talk about later, this doesn't mean he's not involved in them. It just means that's what he uses. There are other texts that communicate this. One that's very important to us this morning is in Matthew. In Matthew 10, in verse 29, Jesus is in the midst of talking to the disciples. He's about to send them off to uh, go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. He's sending them off to do some pretty crazy stuff in some pretty crazy places. And to comfort them, he says the following, Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And sometimes when we read a part, we might think, well, God has knowledge that it's happening. Let's just pose this rationally to you and I. If you were about to go to a place where you might very well be put to death, would it be a comfort to you to say, there's a God in control, and if you die, he knows? That would not comfort me. That would not comfort me in the least bit. But if you were to tell me that there's a God so in control that if you die, it is according to his purposes, that would allow me to rest in his sovereignty. Would I still be scared to death? Yes, probably. But I could stop and remind myself in those moments of frightfulness and concern. No, God knows even a sparrow when it falls. And not only does he know, it doesn't happen unless he says, this time has come for this sparrow. And are not you worth more than a sparrow? Psalm 104 speaks a lot of God working in the midst of the everyday. It doesn't lessen his involvement. It just communicates that he is so intimately involved that everything that takes place happens according, happens according to his plan. Here's Psalm 104. I'm just going to read a little bit in the middle chunk, starting in verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen, his, strengthen man's heart. We could go on and read more of it. It just continues to talk about how these things that we look at and say every day they take place because of this pattern that's been set up in creation. It doesn't mean that God's not there willing each of these things to happen. That's just the means that he has used. Even further, there's a pattern in Scripture that is laid down as physical and it reflects the spiritual reality. No surprise there, God often uses this shadow and reality concept. Genesis 1 talks about plants being spoken into existence and that they will bear fruit according to their kind. No surprise, right? Plant a tomato plant, find tomatoes. Plant an apple seed, find apple, right? Same thing is true in life. Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. This is what Proverbs is all about. Choose one style of life. Don't be surprised when that's the type of living that you have. If you make choices like a fool, don't be surprised one day if you wake up and you think, I kind of live like a fool. If you make choices like a wise person, 
Don't be surprised if you wake up and say, wow, there's wisdom in the choices I make. That's what Solomon is trying to teach his son. Whatever you sow in your life, that you will reap. This is a spiritual reality as well. Romans talks about this in Romans 8. Those who sow according to the flesh, they will reap death. Those who sow according to the Spirit, they will reap life. In Galatians, Paul talks about this, with the fruit of the Spirit. As I've talked about before, this is not fruit stapling, where we go, okay, I need to have more self-control. Quick, self-control. No, Paul is saying, when you sow opportunities of self-control, and you express self-control in those, and when you trust that God is the God who is sovereign in those moments, and you can trust, you can be controlled, and you don't have to have an outburst, don't be surprised if months, years later, you begin to be a person who expresses deep self-control in situations that are profoundly difficult. And when you don't express self-control, don't think, I'm a shameful human being. It's so bad that I, I can't be a Christian and, and have self-control. Think, what are the choices that I've made that have led up to me not being someone who expresses self-control? Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. God uses everyday means to accomplish his purposes. This is how he functions. And third, quickly, hardship does not mean the wrong path. Hardship does not mean the wrong path. I'm just going to throw three examples. Two of them are basically the same. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah is obviously lamenting, and he says in verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So he says here, good and bad both come from God. God is totally in control. If he uses all of these purposes, all these means to bring about his purposes, all occurrences, that means that includes good. And if here Jeremiah says that good and bad come from God, does not that then mean that bad could be God's means in our life or in our lives, I should say, sorry. To make it even larger, we have Jeremiah, the whole book. So Lamentations is written by Jeremiah. It's a sad story of the things that he observed. And the whole book of Jeremiah is basically God saying to Jeremiah, you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to go speak to these people. You're going to tell them to change the way that they're living. They're not living according to the agreement that we set up. It's going to end in destruction. They are sowing one way of life. It's going to reap a way of life that's going to be horrific for them. And then he bemoans his life because nobody listens. And so Jeremiah's life, this prophet's life, is an example to us. Even if we repeatedly run up against difficulty, it doesn't mean it's the wrong path. That was the choice that God had for Jeremiah. Difficulty followed by difficulty followed by difficulty followed by difficulty. Or Job. Job is the classic story of good and evil. Why do bad things happen to so-called good people? Why do bad things happen to any people? And the story there is that what happens to Job is of no fault of his own. Actually, in the beginning of Job, it says in uh, verse 11, sorry, I have the wrong spot. Chapter 2, verse 11, nope, verse 10, it says that Job did not sin with his lips in all that he had done thus far. And right before that is a statement. As he's speaking to his wife, he says, should we receive good from God and should we not also receive evil? Job had made no mistakes in his speech up until that moment. And some people will be quick to point out, well, it wasn't from God that these trials and difficulties came for Job. It was from Satan. Did you notice who painted the target on Job's back? Here's Satan walking around, walking around to and fro on the earth. He has an audience with God. And, he, and God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He just, he lit him up. He, he pointed 
Satan in the direction of Job. Now, you may be comfortable and with saying that that doesn't mean that God was the one who orchestrated that, but I am certainly not. I think the text puts out very clearly. God puts hardship in our lives. It's a part of our lives. Not just that he allows it. He actually puts it in place in our lives. I'm totally neglecting the biggest hardship that has ever existed, and that is what Jesus faced on the cross. And in the cross, what we see is that hardship is what God uses for his people. And it's actually the pattern that was established by Jesus that much of the New Testament writers talk about. Okay, so let's move on from there. Let's go to these implications. I'm going to blow through them rather quickly. Uh, They're all going to be written down for you. One of them you'll need to change. I think it's number four, so I apologize ahead of time for that. The first one I'm going to belabor, but that's because I think this is the most important one, and don't expect that the rest of them will take this long. So number one, God is totally sovereign. This is an implication for us. When I say totally sovereign, I mean fully in control. I often talk with people about this, and I say, let's say I take a pen and I drop it. My choice, but God was the one who was sovereign over that taking place. If, as Colossians says, he holds the earth together, that means the atoms in that pen and the atoms in my hand and the blood that's pumping through my body that enabled my muscles to do that movement, those were ordained by God. Yes, did I make the choice? Absolutely. But Scripture lays down two tracks. And they converge in a place that we don't understand how they're separate, but we know for sure when we stand in the middle that there's something that's different there. But they both exist. So here's the testimony of Scripture. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Here's where I join you. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. There are four statements in there, maybe five, of God saying what he says will come to pass, will come to pass. And he even throws out this anecdotal statement of, look, if a bird comes flying from the east, it's not the bird making that choice. That's me saying I've called that bird, and the reason the bird is coming is because I've called it. Here are two more. Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in a city? And the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does that make you uncomfortable like it makes me uncomfortable? Disaster coming from the hand of a good and gracious king? That's difficult to conceive of. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity or disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. In Isaiah, that's in the context, and in Amos, that's in the context of God's people about to be or on the other side of being frustrated with the fact that God has brought in three people groups, the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, to execute justice against his people for the wrong that they have done. He both finds fault with his people and with those that he has used to punish them. That is the sovereignty of God, that he can use and wield evil, and it does not ruin him. That is complete power. A God who cannot handle evil and come away untouched is not an all-sovereign God. He has limits. This God has no limits. Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 5 when speaking of providence. 
God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. All things. All things. Everything. He is sovereign over every bit of it. Here is the silver-tongued preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He says, as he speaks about, not this text, but something concerning this subject, you will say this morning, our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing. Some will say, ah, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. Notice there's no providence there. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be, but the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Spurgeon doesn't say, never ordains anything bad. He says, never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says God moves the wheels along, and there they are. Isn't that so encouraging? To stop and think that this God of ours is so great that evil does not thwart him. In fact, he can use evil, and it can be for good. If you are uncomfortable with the fact that God uses evil for good, you are uncomfortable with the cross. It was the most horrific evil that was ever committed. The Son of God put to death. That was evil. And yet, it was said in Acts that it, was, it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not plan like chess, but plan and foreknowledge as in knowing the beginning from the end and deciding what took place when and how. This is the God that we serve. So wonderful. But he is so sovereign, so completely sovereign. Number two, Paul's example to us is not a burden. Don't be burdened by Paul's example. Sometimes when we read these texts about these great men and women, we, we hear sermons like, dare to be a Daniel. And I think there are times when maybe that might be appropriate. For the most part, those are not helpful ways to communicate the text. Daniel is actually not at all about daring to be a Daniel. It's about what God's doing in a different place, beginning to call his people back as he said he would in the the minor prophets, the major prophets. When we look at Paul, I don't think we should walk away and go, whew, i got a long ways to go. I think when we look at Paul, we should look at a man who saw Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus, and that vision, seeing Jesus, gave him so much hope and joy and peace and faith and sureness that he could walk through everything that he faced in the rest of Acts. And there were times he was discouraged and times when he thought his life was over and he despaired as he talks about in First or Second Corinthians chapter 1. But we should not look at that as a burden. We shouldn't say, this is my pattern. He does say, follow me, but I don't think that's like a shame on you. I think that's like a, come after me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Take upon my yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If you are called to 
follow Paul and it creates a burden, I think maybe you're misunderstanding what he's doing there. He's not saying you have to be like me. That's not what Luke's goal is. He's saying, look at this man who saw Jesus and that vision took him through a shipwreck. And people telling him, uh, we're just going to go our own way. You don't need to tell us what to do. We're the sailors. And he took it in stride. Imagine the frustration that would have mounted inside of him. The ship's getting ready to break up, and he's thinking, if you guys would have just listened to me, we would have stayed in Fairhaven. But that's because he looked into Jesus and saw the beauty that's there. Number three, don't run from trials. Wow, are we bad at this one, huh? We just think, bad thing happened, I must run the other direction. And many times, we, if I can make a joke, we apply this concept of repenting to our trials more than we do to anything else. Oh, there's a trial. I need to turn 180 degrees and run in the opposite direction. I don't want anything to do with a trial. If I have a trial, I just should get as far away from it as possible. No. We should be stopping and asking, why is this here? Why has a good and sovereign and gracious king put this in my life today? That don't mean that if you get a stubbed toe, you stop and sit there and think, hmm. Let me waste an hour trying to conceive of, what did I do that led to that? No, that's not what I'm saying, but do ask. Why is this here? Ask somebody close to you. Hey, I'm having a difficulty with this. Why is this going on? Here's some texts. I'm just going to flash them up there real quick. If you want them later, you can bother me. Otherwise, they're online. Basically, what they show is affliction and comfort, trial and good, both have a place in the Christian life. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, as James says. These are opportunities delivered to you by a good and gracious Father. If I could just say something to parents here, there is a parenting methodology here that is wonderful. It is to take a kid who has sinned, who has been caught, and not to shame them, but to say, what actions led to this moment? And, and child, what is God trying to show you about who he is? Not how dare you speak ill of my family name with these X, Y, and Z choices that you've made, but instead, what's God trying to show you? What is he trying to reveal to you about what you worship? How is he trying to capture your heart? It's a wonderful way to draw our kids to the gospel. Okay, number four. Redefine what we think of as good. Redefine what we think of as good. That's different from what you have there. I have, don't under-spiritualize but it's redefine what we think of as good. Part of the reason that we have a difficulty in God's sovereignty is that we too often reduce goodness down to what benefits us. Just think through the past couple weeks. Think through the things that you've done that you would label good. Or happen, I'm sorry, the things that have happened to you that you would label good. More often than not, my guess is that they benefit you. I'm not saying that you're bad because of that. I'm not saying we're bad because of that. But too often we reduce good down to how it immediately benefits us. But Romans 8 says that God works all things out for good for those who love him. Good things and bad things. A little bit further on in Romans 8 where that text is found, he talks about how some are lost to the sword. He talks about height nor depth, angels nor demons. It includes death. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. So we just have to redefine what good is. If we speak all the time of something good happening to us and we say God's good because of this and we don't speak of evil happening to us and saying that's good that God is doing this to me, 
Slowly but surely, we are training ourselves and we are training those around us. Good is defined by what benefits me. Perhaps you've had significant loss because of COVID. Financial, positional, perhaps a loved one. Those are not bad because they're difficult for you. God is so good and so sovereign. He can use those bad things for good. Take a moment to understand what's going on, what is good. I'm going to skip over this quote here. Number five, don't over-spiritualize. As I said before, don't stub your toe and, uh, and make too much of it. Use the means that God has given. I want to throw out one example. If you don't like it, come talk to me afterwards. George Mueller is often held up as a wonderful man because of what he did. And so he was a pastor in Bristol, England in the 1800s. And he had uh, several different orphanages. And he's well known because he never asked for donations. He never asked for financial assistance. And while I appreciate deeply that God worked through that and provided for him, it does beg the question, if George Mueller had done what the New Testament told him to do, that is to share his need with others around him, how many more people would he have been able to have reached if he would have just said, I have a need, would you help me meet it? I'm not saying that George Mueller didn't have faith. I'm not saying what he did was bad. I'm not saying the sum of what he did was bad. But we oftentimes hold up George Mueller as this great example. But he made a bad choice in not communicating to other people. Did God still work? Yes. There are lots of these examples. In fact, there's a missionary who went to the New Hebride people. And uh, he lost several children and his wife to insanity because she was not on the same page with him. He said, I want to go to these people. And she said, I don't think that that's a good thing for me. And he went and she suffered immense loss. And can we just be honest? That was so unkind of him. John G. Patton was his name. Can we just be so, can we just be very honest? It was so unkind of him to neglect his family, to drive his wife to insanity because he was so wrapped up in the spiritual that he didn't have a moment's notice, or he didn't stop and think, what's at the end of my nose and beyond it? How is this affecting those around me? We need to be mindful of that and not be so spiritual that we're just dancing over the way that things might affect other people. God uses these normal means in our life. This, human interaction, talking, being with one another. This is how God functions and operates. Number six, praise God for daily displays of his glory. I've got a long quote. I don't know that I want to take the time to read it. Did I read it? Okay, I'll read it. Uh, this is from a book called Providence that recently came out. And uh, just listen, I don't have it up on the screen, but here John Piper is talking about how God is actually involved in everything, not just the good things that we see. If there is a storm at sea and an ocean liner is sunk, or if a hazardous weather condition brings down a commercial airliner and lives are lost, there is often an outcry, both publicly and in the personal grief of family members, about the failure of God to present this disaster. The question is, where was God? Intense grief is real and painful and understandable from all who experience loss in these disasters. And very often, even the most mature saints speak ill-advised words for the wind. And there he's referencing the way that Job's friends spoke to Job. Wise counselors let them pass without judgment in the moment of crisis. But where is the corresponding emotional intensity or even mild recognition of God's providence when 100,000 airplanes land safely every single day? 
That is roughly how many scheduled flights there are every day in the world. And that does not include general aviation, air taxis, military, and cargo. Where is the incessant chorus of amazement and thanks that today God provided 10 million mechanical and natural and personal factors to conspire perfectly to keep these planes in the air and bring them to their desired destination safely, and most of them carrying people who neglect and demean God every day? Even when a plane with no functioning engines lands in the Hudson River, happened a couple years ago, and every passenger walks away on the floating wings of this 80-ton airliner, or when a plane with 97 passengers crashes in Mexico and bursts into flames after every passenger and the entire crew are safely off the plane, that also happened. Where is the public outpouring of thankfulness to the God of wonders? Where is the heart's cry of thankfulness to God that we hear in Psalm 107:31? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. The world and even thousands of Christians give no praise and thanks to God for millions of daily, life-sustaining providences because they do not see the world as the theater of God's wonders. They see it as a vast machine running on mindless natural laws except where our heart's rebelliousness and self-exaltation find us a suitable opportunity to find fault with God and justify our blindness to a billion acts of kindness toward his defiant creation please don't go any further than applying that to yourself. Don't think about people who don't know Jesus. Just think about yourself. I used to be so angry when I would drive around and cars would stop and I received some fantastic um, help. That was this. When your car has to stop because of traffic, stop and take in the sun or the clouds or the trees. Dwell on what God has done around you that's good. Remember, just because these things function every day from the rising of the sun to the setting, just because they're ordered and they follow laws and there are times to sail and times not to sail and ways to swim and ways not to swim, just because those things happen doesn't mean God is not involved in them in every single moment of every single day. He is involved in them. He is there. Find a way to, to see that. Sometimes when I'm near to my wife or to my girls, if I, if I get my ear next to their heart, I will oftentimes take my head and, and put it right up next to where I can hear their heart beat. And I will just remind myself, one day, this will stop. But today, it's beating. Stop and think about that. Feel your heart. It is beating, not because it just beats but because God has ordained that and he's working and we have life today because of that. That's just so glorious. It's so wonderful. So, last two. Take in the gospel. There's this book here. I have five copies of them. If you don't have this and if you would like to soak in the gospel and be reminded of his goodness, um, come get me and this is free to you. I would say if you are more well off, I'm probably not going to give it to you. <laughs> so let others come up uh, first. And uh, let them take. And I'm not saying if you come up, that means you're not well off. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. So I just caught myself in trouble there. Never mind. Whoever wants it, come get it. No judgment. <laughs> but uh, this book is so helpful because it gives us reasons to observe the gospel. I'm just going to paraphrase one real quick. He says in here that the only thing that's referred to in the text as the power of God is the gospel. It's the only thing. It's not eruptions of volcanoes. It's not earthquakes. It's not tornadoes. It's not any of the billions of things that occur on everyday basis 
in this world and in this galaxy and in this universe. That's not the power of salvation. or That's not the power of God. The power of God in here, as he references from the text, is the gospel. Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. So do you want to change? Do you want to be one who looks into what Jesus has done and walks away like Paul, not because you have to, but because you get to? Look into the gospel. Here are ways to do that. Last, express that phrase externally. Here are just a couple ideas. Take walks and observe creation. Be vocal about it. Wow, look at that bird. Look at all those dandelions. Man, I hate them when they're in my yard. Look at them, how they just explode in a color of yellow. Enjoy that. Write poetry. Stories. Rhymes about God's goodness. Sing songs that focus on what God has done. And can I say, belt them at the top of your lungs. I don't care if you can't sing. Sing God's praises. Share of what he is doing in your life with others. Tell people. When you think about telling people about Jesus, it's not a have to. When I think about telling people about French silk pie, don't even get me started. I can't eat it anymore. It is so good, right? The way the coils of chocolate on top work with the smoothness of the mousse underneath. Am I making anybody hungry? Yeah. I don't have to, I don't have to be uh, pride to talk about French silk pie. Come to see Jesus so that you don't have to be pride to talk about how good he is. And let's also just sing this last song together and praise him. While the group is coming up, here are some homework. Discuss in small group why we're so hesitant to view God as totally sovereign. Like really, what is it that, that uh, chafes you or I so significantly about that that makes us uncomfortable? Talk with someone about a trial that you're going through. Ask them to help you see how is God active in this? Or what is he trying to show me in the midst of this trial? Make a list of 10 things every day, everyday things that you are thankful for. Small things. Like I'm thankful that they make chocolate milk that doesn't have dairy in it and doesn't have sugar in it since I can't have those two things and I can still enjoy chocolate milk. Small things. God ordained. I'm so thankful for it. Again, these are all online for you. Let's sing.